Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. This talk was recorded live at the Pastoral Refreshment Conference in 2009. The speaker is Andrew Page on Struggles in Discipleship. Before we look at, we do the exposition, I've been encouraged to say something about uh, the structure that I'm working with with Mark's Gospel and the book, The Mark Experiment, and also the Mark Drama. And that will take about an hour and a half, and then there'll be a short exposition <laughs> afterwards. Um, let me say something about this structure. You will have noticed from last night that there was uh, a block, of, I called it block B, of eight incidents with a kind of logic to them. Do you remember it was uh, feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walks on the water, healing in Gennesaret. There were three encounters with Jews. And at the end of the block, there was the <coughs> Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus heals a deaf and dumb man, and Jesus feeds the 4,000. There's the three encounters with Gentiles. In the middle, there was a con- double confrontation with the Jewish leaders. And that has a sort of logic to it, which makes it very easy to learn. And also they are, uh, they have mirror links. So A and A1 have something in common, like yesterday, the feeding of the 5,000, arguably, has something in common with the feeding of the 4,000. <laughs> you obviously got there before me, that's great. <laughs> um, and, and there are these links, B1, B and B1, C and C1, D and D1, and it's great for learning the gospel. Um, so I, I think, this is just my suggestion, that uh, Mark's Gospel can divide up to be divided up into six sections, and in each section there is in the middle of it a block of eight incidents with a logic. And that means you can learn the order of the events off by heart. And the great thing about learning the order of the events off by heart is you can then do Bible study in the shower without getting your Bible wet. <laughs> now, how, how about that? That is a phenomenal thing to be able to do. So you start scrubbing, and you're talking to the Lord about the first incident in one of the sections and worshipping him. And when you run out of things to say, you go on to the next incident, because you know what it is. And you get to know the whole gospel in its, in its context. And the extraordinary thing is you can, nearly everybody, I, nearly every Christian I've met can learn any of the six sections in ten minutes. And obviously there's the wave of skepticism that always comes whenever I say that to a group of Christians. It really is possible. Challenge me. I'd love it if a few people would challenge me in one of the breaks and say, try and teach me one of the sections in 10 minutes. It's wonderful to have it in your head and in your heart. David said, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. There is power in the word of God. So anyway, that's why I'm excited about um, this structure. And the book that um, I wrote called The Mark Experiment is about learning Mark's gospel. So do have a look at that if you want to. Normal price is £6.45. Special offer this week, £5. That was an opportunity for an ooh. ooh. Yeah, thank you very much. They're over there. Let me just say something about the Mark drama. The, the book is not about the drama. The Mark drama is uh, a presentation of Mark's gospel. It's every incident in the whole of the gospel, from start to finish, performed as theatre in the round. So you have a very small centre circle, 
and then you have the audience sitting in concentric circles around there. There are three aisles so that the actors can get in and out. And the whole thing is acted by 15 people, eight men, seven women from a local church. It's not that I would bring a team. Your local church or maybe your local church and another one together would find a team of eight men, seven women. They don't have to have experience in acting. The power is not in the actors. The power is in the story, of course. The most powerful story ever. If you'd said to me five years ago, come to a drama uh, on Mark's Gospel, every incident in the whole Gospel, I know I would have said to you, yes, and do they serve breakfast at the end? Because I'd have thought this is going to be far too long. It's 90 minutes, roughly. But because there's no script to learn, much of it is improvised, um, it'll vary a little bit in length, but usually it's about 90 minutes long. And it is an extraordinary experience to see the whole of the Gospel acted out in one evening. It's one of the most exciting things I've ever experienced. And it would be just a fantastic thing if your church thought about putting it on. I would come and do an information evening for anyone that might just possibly be interested in joining the acting team but wants to know a lot more before signing on the dotted line. So I would explain what it's about. And if we then get a team of eight men, seven women, then we can go ahead. And they then have six weeks, these 15 people, to learn the order of the events of the whole gospel, one week for each of the six sections. Because by the time we get to the first rehearsal, they need to know the order of all the events. Obviously, the Jesus actor has more work to do, but I've, worked, I've done this with about 30 Jesus actors, and everyone has done it because people are motivated and because the Lord is, is helping. Um, and then the first rehearsal is on the Thursday evening, the second rehearsal is Friday evening. The third rehearsal is Saturday, 9 till 3.30. And the first performance is Saturday, that evening, which shouldn't be possible to rehearse it in such a short time. But it is, and it's wonderful, and it's amazing. And I think, hallelujah, every time I see it. I could almost get enthusiastic about the Mark drama. <laughs> I think we'll, we'll get on now with the exposition. Um, if anybody wants to talk to me about the Mark drama or about the Mark structure, I'd be delighted, obviously. Uh, but please not in the next 35 minutes. Um, would you like to turn, please, to chapter 8, verse 31? We looked yesterday at the joy of discipleship, and the greatest joy of discipleship is knowing Jesus and knowing Jesus better and better. And today we're going to think about the struggles of discipleship. I'd like to pray again. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have your word in our hands. Please take our lives into your hands and speak into them. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. The greatest struggle I have with discipleship is accepting the fact that discipleship is often a struggle. It's not only a struggle. There is joy there as well. We've already seen that. But I actually, deep down in me, I don't want discipleship to be a struggle. I want the Christian life to be very easy. 
I am a giver-upper. I'm the kind of person who, when he encounters difficulties, finds it the easiest thing to do when a problem arises is to find sufficient amounts of sand and to stick my head in it. When I was 11 or 12, I decided to start a new hobby, which was stamp collecting. And uh, I was very enthusiastic about this, but after three days, I made the decision to give up being a stamp collector because I, in those days, you had to lick hinges and stick the... Yes, you, some of you are old enough to know this. And I opened on the third day, I opened up the book and all the stamps fell out that I'd stuck in. And I thought, I'm just not cut out to be a stamp collector. <laughs> so that when I became a Christian, when I was 14, I went home and said to my friends, I've become a Christian. And my father said, that's nice. And my mother said, don't be silly, you've always been a Christian, you're English. Um, when I, uh, that was when I preached my first sermon, which was very bad timing. Uh, and she said at the end of the conversation, I'll give it three weeks. And she actually knew me very well. And um, she experienced the stamp collecting thing and a few other things like it. And it was probably, humanly speaking, very generous to give me three weeks being a Christian. And yet the Lord keeps hold of us. It's been more than 20 years now that I've been a Christian. <laughs> where's, the, where's the grace now? It is more than 20 years. I am 56. And I'm still a Christian. It's astonishing. And there are times when I've tried to give up being a Christian. And the Lord hasn't given up on me. He is very patient and very determined. We saw it yesterday. It's extraordinary. And I imagine that many of us are sitting here now thinking, yes, Lord, thank you that you haven't let go of me. It's a miracle that I'm still a Christian. So there are struggles in discipleship. And one of the main struggles, of course, is the whole battle with sin in our lives. And this uh, section, which I call section four in Mark's gospel, is about, I called it the cost, because I think it's about two main things. It's about the cost of the kingdom to Jesus. It tells us what it's going to cost Jesus to save men and women. So you've got three predictions of his death, and they're at the beginning of each of the three blocks there. That's the cost to Jesus. But also here, there's something about the cost to disciples. Salvation is free. Jesus has earned it. Hallelujah. But if we're going to live as disciples, it will cost us. Sometimes there will be struggles and there will be stress. There will be a battle against sin. And so there are parts of this section which are talking about the cost of the kingdom to disciples. And we're going to focus especially on block B. Let me just explain the structure, the logic of block B for you. There are uh, incidents B, C and D are three mistakes that disciples easily make. And then incidents D1, C1 and B1 are three areas in which disciples ought to be different from the world around. 
But we're going to begin in chapter 8, verse 31, just to begin looking at this first prediction and Peter's reaction to it. Because we saw at the end yesterday that the disciples had recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. But of course, they haven't recognized what kind of Messiah he is. So 8.31, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. I think it is significant in verse 31, he began to teach them. He had not yet been teaching them about his suffering and his death. But now that they've recognized that he's the Messiah, now is the time to begin to teach them what kind of Messiah he is. Because their instinctive reaction is to feel he's going to be a political Messiah who's going to chuck out the Romans and make Israel top nation. So we get this story, verse 33, when Jesus turned, uh, sorry, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I think it's interesting, Peter took him aside. It's almost as if he doesn't want to embarrass Jesus when he corrects him here. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus is angry because this is a real temptation. Humanly, he doesn't want to go to the cross. Humanly, it would be much easier for Jesus to be a political messiah, wouldn't it? But do you notice the beginning of verse 33? This is only in Mark's gospel. It says, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. I can't know why that's there, but I can imagine what Jesus is doing when he turns and looks at his disciples. I can imagine that he's turning and looking at them and thinking, well, humanly, I don't want to go to the cross. But these are my best friends. And if I do not go to the cross, they will go to hell. And that gives him the strength to turn around and rebuke Peter. And then immediately we have this important passage, verses 34 to 38, about discipleship. Jesus called the crowd to him, verse 34, along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We know these words so well, but we do need to hear them regularly. At least I do. We need to deny ourselves. I need to make the decision. Andrew Page is not going to be in charge of Andrew Page's life. Andrew Page is not going to be the center of Andrew Page's life. I need to deny myself. I need to take up my cross. That means to be willing to be a martyr and to know that it's going to involve struggle and suffering to be a faithful disciple. And I need to make that decision because I cringe from those things. I am naturally a giver-upper. And then we will follow Jesus. So what happens in block B of this uh, section is that we get the second prediction and then we get a number of um, teachings of Jesus about discipleship. And I'm going to, we're going to go through looking at these in turn Let's be asking the Holy Spirit to be speaking to us. Um, Turn with me to chapter 9, verse 30. 
They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Interesting verse 30 and the beginning of verse 31. He didn't want other people to know where they were. He wanted to be alone with his disciples because he has things he wants to teach them. It's interesting. Do you remember what the father had said at the transfiguration just a couple of passages before? This is my son, chapter 9, verse 7, whom I love. Listen to him. And now in block B, Jesus is going to be teaching them. They're to listen to him as he teaches them about the cost of discipleship. Yesterday, the emphasis was on looking at Jesus. Today, the emphasis is on listening to Jesus as he teaches us. So here are three incidents, three mistakes that disciples make. And I'd be very surprised if any of us sitting here will sit here looking at these three mistakes and think, well, nothing to do with me. Never been my problem. Um, If you do have that reaction, please talk to a good friend afterwards. They will tell you the truth. So let's look look first at I am the greatest. Verse 33, chapter 9, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. This is incredible, isn't it? Jesus had just been talking about the fact he's going to suffer and die. And what are these guys talking about? Who is the best disciple? Is that pathetic or is that pathetic? Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be the first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So the attitude here of the disciples, the mistake that they're making, is this attitude that says, I am the greatest. And this is clearly a big problem for the disciples in Mark's Gospel. Um, Have a look on to chapter 10, verse 35. Then it would be great to hear the pages rustling. Chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, they think they're better than the others, and therefore they ought to get top places. Then verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I suspect not because they think James and John are unspiritual. They're just angry that James and John nearly got in first. I am the greatest. And Jesus teaches them here. Uh, He says, you shouldn't behave like the Gentiles, verse 42, verse 43. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And then he uses himself and his own forthcoming death as an example, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I think this thing about I am the greatest is deeply rooted 
in us. Maybe not thinking we're the best of everybody, but we're very keen to find people we can look down on. Have another look, um, have a look with me at chapter 14 from verse 27 onwards. This is after the Last Supper. And they're on the Mount of Olives, chapter 14, verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now look what Peter says. Even if all fall away, I will not. Now I know he says that because he loves Jesus. But he's not far from saying, well, I could believe the others would do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, sad, but I think they could fall away. But not me. Which is very close to saying I'm the greatest. And while I point the finger at Peter, I need to be thinking about myself. How often do I find myself thinking about somebody maybe who's been caught in a sin? I would never do that. Or I hear someone and I think uh, my theology is a lot better than his or hers. We're very quick. Oh, I'm very quick. Maybe I'm the only one in the room to put myself on a pedestal and say I'm better than other people. Look back at uh, chapter 9, verse 35. Think about the Christians in your church or in the ministry that God has called you to. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Look at the last two words. There are some people I find it very easy, really, to be a servant of. I find it very easy to respect them and love them and serve them. But there are other people I find that very hard to do. Because I naturally do not respect and honour them. And Jesus says, be the servant of all. This can create a struggle in me. It's part of the struggle of discipleship. I think the Holy Spirit is inviting me to make the decision again. I want to serve people. And maybe especially the people I find it quite hard to love and to serve. Um, I'm on a team at Above Bar Church. John Risbridger is team leader. He's my boss. So I'll be very careful what I say this morning. I think I think the Lord has been very, very gracious to us. I don't sense any feeling of competition in our staff team wanting us wanting to be the greatest. But Jeremiah 17 haunts me. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But we need to make sure we are honouring and respecting one another. And we should be asking the Lord to uncover attitudes in our hearts that are basically saying, I am the greatest. I am better than others. It's extraordinary, this image of a child here, verse 36. He took a little child, had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And then comes a typical Jesus 
sentence. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me. That's classic Jesus. Makes you sit up and think, what's going on here? Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. We will experience more of God's presence, more of God's working in our lives if we commit to serve others and welcome others in Jesus' name. I am the greatest. Second mistake we can easily make is we are the only ones. Teacher said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Jesus says, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. This is the attitude that says, we are, we are, the, real, we are the real thing. We're the real McCoy. And everyone else is really second class, second rate. Now, Jesus' answer here is not saying it doesn't matter what people believe. Three times in four verses, there's this emphasis on things being done in Jesus' name. It's there in verse 38, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. It's there in verse 39, no one who does a miracle in my name. And it's there in verse 41, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name. It's talking about people who love Jesus and who are wanting to serve Jesus in all that they do. And we should accept one another. But we so easily, because we're excited, hopefully positive about the, the group of Christians we're part of, the danger is we start thinking we're the only ones. Oh, the others are, are, are saved. Oh, yeah, they are converted. But they, you know, I, I mean, uh, they, they, really, they don't, I, I mean, uh, uh, don't get me started. Um, one of the things that's happened to me, I was in Austria for 20 years. And when I came back from Austria a year and three quarters ago, I discovered that many Christians in in the churches, I think, don't know what the word evangelical means anymore and don't really care. And I actually think the word evangelical is a lovely word because it communicates to me that we can disagree about all kinds of things without being disagreeable as long as the essential foundation is there, the authority of the word of God, the truth of the gospel, and the lordship of Jesus. If those things are there, I can work with others, I can respect others, I can welcome others. I may not be, it may not be easy to be in the same church as some of those people, that's, that's fine, it's, it's good that there are different kinds of churches. But if these essentials are there, if we're evangelicals, then we can work together and love one another. And I think there's a danger that we are splintering off from one another the whole time and only having fellowship with the people we agree with about everything. If I only had fellowship with people I agreed with about everything, <laughs> I wouldn't always be able to have fellowship with me. <laughs> but here's this, we are the only ones. Do we give the impression that somehow in our town, 
our church is really the only one that's doing it right. I mean, let's thank God for the good things in our church, but, oh dear, let's not start saying or thinking we are the only ones. I think we're dishonouring God's church when we do that. Do you know the story about the the married couple who kept leaving churches because they could never find a church that was good enough and they'd moved to another church they thought would be, and then after a time they had to leave there as well because it just wasn't good enough, and they kept leaving churches until in their mid-80s they weren't in any church at all. They would just um, celebrate communion together in their living room every Sunday morning. And this went on, and when they were in their mid-90s, still doing this every Sunday morning, after they celebrated the Lord's Supper with them one Sunday together, one Sunday morning, the man looked at his wife and said, you know, sometimes, dear, I think we are the only Christians who have really got it right. And I'm not completely sure about you. (laughs) And whenever I tell that story, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. It is funny, but it's also sad because there is something of that in us. Or am I the only one? You look appalled. That could be a struggle for us to accept and welcome others who think differently about all kinds of things but are absolutely clear on the essentials of the gospel, scripture and the lordship and work of Jesus. The third uh, mistake we can easily make is the mistake of saying sin doesn't matter. We can cause other people to sin. Verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. But the emphasis of this paragraph is about causing ourselves to sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And then Jesus says the same thing about the foot and the same thing about the eye, and he's talking about us causing ourselves to sin. And uh, Tom referred to this last night. Do you know what comfort sins are? You know what comfort sins are? Comfort sins are when you're disappointed or down or depressed or discouraged, and you look to a sin to distract you or to build you up. It may be alcohol, it may be pornography, maybe chocolate. The, um, the, the hand, if your hand causes you to sin, Jesus may be talking about something we do. If your foot causes you to sin, Jesus may be talking about somewhere we go. If your eye causes you to sin, Jesus may be talking about something we look at. And he's saying, do something about it. Don't play with fire, because when you play with fire, you're playing with the fire of hell. This is very straight, very straight talking to the disciples. But let me encourage us, if you are struggling in any of these three areas, I am the greatest, we are the only ones, sin doesn't matter, Don't think you are the only one. This is here because this is a problem that disciples struggle with. You are normal if you've ever struggled in any of these three areas. 
And if you have never struggled in any of these three areas, you may not be normal. I'm sorry to upset you. But let's hear Jesus, the teacher, teaching us about discipleship. And the opportunity is there today to come back and to ask forgiveness and to receive forgiveness because of what Jesus did on the cross. And the opportunity is there to start again and to ask for new strength. The opportunity is there to maybe talk to someone from the pastoral team and to say, this is something I need to talk about, one of these three areas. Or maybe to say to someone from the pastoral team, I don't really want to talk about this, but this is the problem area for me. Would you just pray for me? Can we just pray for a few minutes? Three mistakes disciples make. Now let's look briefly at these three areas where disciples should be different. First of all, the attitude to marriage. Um, the, the Pharisees come and they ask their trick question about divorce. And Jesus uses the opportunity to talk about marriage. Chapter 10, verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. In other words, marriage is something that Christian disciples will see as something holy and special. Uh, it's an odd thing for me to be talking about this in a way. Some people will think it's odd because I'm not married. I'm single, although I don't like the word single. I prefer to describe myself as a childless, single-parent family. <laughs> should we discuss that in small groups? Or really? But single people should be respecting marriage and seeing how we can support and build up the marriages of people around us. Marriage is something special. It's from God. It's very clear there, isn't it? Verse 6, verse 7. Verse 8, verse 9. We could include the whole area of sexuality there. And if we want to look for a link between incidents D and D1 here, there's an obvious link which offers itself. One reason why some divorces happen is that no one cut a hand off early enough, or cut a foot off, or gouged out an eye. And we need to be pure. High standards, but we have the Lord, and he's there wanting to help us. Have a look at the uh, next area where our attitude should be different. Attitude to children, verses 13 to 16. You know this incident. Please look at the verses. I won't read them. If you're looking for a mirror link between C and C1, I think this is a really cool link. That's why I want to talk about it. Um, way back in C, we are the only ones. That was John saying, we saw this man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, and Jesus says, don't stop him. Here are the uh, disciples trying to stop parents bringing children, and Jesus says, don't stop them. It's exactly the same thing. The disciples are trying to stop people coming to Jesus or serving Jesus, and Jesus is saying, don't stop them. It's the same thing. 
And uh, attitude to children is one area in which we should be different. And you can broaden out this idea of children. It certainly, of course, includes the idea of literal physical children and our attitude to them, welcoming them, treating them as real people. But in the first century, children were seen as very unimportant, should be seen and not heard. And therefore, you could broaden this out and say this is also about people in our churches and in our world who people naturally see as insignificant and unimportant. The people, again, we naturally look down on. The people who maybe are not particularly bright or don't have our sort of taste or whatever. The people we don't click with. The people who are unemployed. The people who are struggling with drugs or alcohol. Are we welcoming people like that? Attitude to children. And then attitude to possessions from verse 17 onwards. This well-known story of the rich young ruler. Um, he has two things in his hands, doesn't he? First of all, there's this sense of his own goodness. But more than anything else, the great thing he has in his hands is this feeling of all my possessions are giving me security. And Jesus sees that his possessions are his God. And so he says to them, says to him, verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. This man has got to stop worshipping another God if he's going to follow Jesus. And I think this teaching is here partly for us as disciples. We don't notice the hold that possessions have on us. Um, I've got a friend who's a pastor. Uh, he's not here. And they had some savings and they invested the savings. And... Um, they invested the savings in a bank in Iceland. And they think they've lost it all. And he said to me, it was a, an incredibly bad feeling, obviously, when, it, when we first heard this. But actually, we can see how the Lord is working in our hearts through the whole thing. And they're able to trust him. And they actually have a new sense of his closeness to them. I need to, to come to an end. Have a look, please, at chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, which is talking about the rewards of discipleship. Because if we, even though we find these things hard and we struggle in these areas that we've looked at, there are great rewards for disciples who want to be serious about following Jesus. Verse 28, Peter said to Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now verse 29 is not just talking about cross-cultural missionaries, it's talking about all disciples. 
In principle, we need to leave everything. We need to have an open hand. Or it's like I'm sitting at a table and Jesus is sitting opposite me and he says to me, Andrew, put everything on the table. And when I put stuff on the table, he will take some things away, but other things he will leave on the table for me to use for him and the gospel. Andrew, put everything on the table. So I start to put things on the table. My relationships, my family, my hopes, my plans, my gifts, my reputation, my sins for him to forgive. And uh, when I've done that, he looks across the table and says, um, anything else? And I very easily find myself thinking, well, not really, no. I mean, just a small thing. And Jesus smiles at me. And I put that on the table too. Being a disciple is putting everything on the table. Trusting Jesus that he will make the right decision, what he does with everything. But look at the blessings that come. No one who has done that will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. With persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now think about those three things. This is wonderful. A hundred times as much in this present age. I'm very conscious of the whole family thing. And we're experiencing it this week. I mean, I haven't met lots of you, but you are family. Sorry, look like that if you want, but you're lumbered with me. We are family. And it's a wonderful thing to be part of this worldwide family. To be part of a group of people who are so different, and yet we sense we are brothers and sisters. It's an extraordinary thing. We have this family. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift. Jesus is very honest. He says there'll be persecutions. And then Jesus promises that there will be eternal life. Just notice one more thing in verses 29 and 30, which always moves me when I see it. Look at the list in verse 29 of all the things that you give up. Those things, most of them, are in the singular. And look at the list of things that you get. Those things are in the plural. But there is something missing in the list in verse 30. The word, the word fathers isn't there. Now, is that a slip of the pen by Mark? A slip of the tongue by Jesus? No, no. Jesus is saying, if you will make the radical decision to be my disciple, to be different in these areas, to say no to these three mistakes, to say yes to, the, to being different in these three areas, if you will make the radical decision to follow me, then yes, you will get this huge family, but you, and you will get mothers and brothers and sisters and fields and homes, but you don't need fathers. Because if you know me, my father is your father. And that is all you need.
So Jesus is offering us, as we come with all our struggles, he's offering us a new sense of knowing God as our Father, caring for us and taking us on into the adventure of following Jesus. Can I ask, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about one of these six areas? Let's respond. He's speaking to us not because he wants to flatten us, he wants to encourage us. If you are, if any of these areas, I say it again, is, is about you, it means you're normal. Now he wants to take us by the hand. He wants to forgive us. He wants to give us his power. And he wants to lead us on into the future so that we can live our lives for Jesus and the gospel. Let's pray. Let's have a a brief silence when we can make our own response to the Lord about what he's said to us. Maybe there's one thing that he has said to you. Maybe some of us would like to make the decision in this silence to talk to someone from the pastoral team and maybe make a time to meet up. Let's pray in the silence and then I'll lead us. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that because we have come to know Jesus, your son, we can call you Abba, Father. Thank you for the miracle that you brought us to this day, and we are still Christians. We are still following you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your patience and your determination, for your patience with us when we have let you down, and for your determination to forgive us and to take us on into your purposes for us. Great God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you and we worship you. And I pray for myself and I pray for others who are in the place where we don't want struggle and we naturally run away from struggle and I pray for me and for those of us in that position that you would help us in your strength to have the courage to fight against sin and to fight for righteousness in our own personal lives and we pray that the world may see that following Jesus brings freedom and joy and peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving a review on your podcast app to help others find us. 
If you'd like to engage further with us on anything you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. You'll find us on any major social media platform, at Living Leaders, or visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll also find more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. God bless.